Well, after you all survived a hurricane last week, God decided that it would be hot this week, which isn't such a bad thing. Kind of feels like normal Southern California here, except if your air conditioning goes out. That would be a bummer, but I'll just tell you, my air conditioning went out this week, and uh, we've had no air conditioning, which is, you know, it's not a big deal, because every night it gets cool again, but it takes a long time to get your house cold with just fans, and when you got little babies that have a hard time sleeping if it's over like 80 degrees in their room, it can kind of be troublesome. And this week I was just thinking about it, right? We still don't have air conditioning yet, and our house is just getting cool. Uh, It's not really getting that cool, which, by the way, in the morning it gets cool. So like at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, that's the coolest it gets. It's like 73, 72 degrees, which is great. That's like normal. But when we got home last night at about 9.30, it was 85 degrees in the house. And just slowly but surely, by midnight, it got down to 80 Right, So then in the middle of the night when we were sleeping, it kind of came down and um, it was good, which is not the worst problem to have, you know, in all things considered. We were thinking this week about our house and just like, what, what does it take to be happy in a house? What does it take to be content with what's going on in your house? And that actually addresses a bigger problem and a bigger question that we often ask ourselves, maybe not uh, directly, but we all think this, time, this thing sometimes, uh, what would it take to make me happy? What would it take to make you happy? What would it take to satisfy you? What would it take for your desires to be covered enough to where you say, I'm good, I'm content? That's a pursuit that really everyone is in, in one way or another. They want to do things and be with people and experience things in life that will make them happy. High schoolers today, you know this, want to find their happiness and they're seeking it in a lot of different ways. Some things are good and some things aren't good. Some of the ways that people seek happiness is in friendships. And relationships. They think that they will be happy and satisfied if they have a close group of friends. Or maybe they imagine, I'd be be really satisfied and happy if there was just like one person that cared about me. Maybe a person that I'm romantically involved with. Like, that's what I want. One day, maybe that will make me happy. We pursue happiness, perhaps in athletic success. You think that if you rise to the top of your team, or you're the best player on your team, or your team succeeds in a certain number of ways, that once you get to the mountaintop, then you'll be happy. Maybe you think that happiness comes in achieving good grades, so much so that colleges look at you, and they're impressed with you, and they think, that's the person we want in our college. And you think, once I get into a very, very good school, that's when I'll be happy. That's when people will be proud of me. Maybe you find your happiness in the small things, things like music or entertainment. Maybe you're a person that prefers to find your happiness in getting lost in the romance of a love song or lost in some kind of world of fantasy when it comes to entertainment or video games or things like that. Maybe that's where you find your happiness. Some people find happiness simply in their imagination about the future, that maybe things will work out for me. Maybe I'll be important. Maybe I'll be liked. Maybe people will want to be with me. Maybe people will think I'm funny. Maybe people will laugh. All those things are ways that people pursue happiness. Jesus has something to say about happiness. The Bible has something to say about happiness. And like we learned about last week, when Jesus spoke, the crowd sensed that he had such authority that everyone was like stopped in their tracks. People listened to him preach, and when he talked about a particular topic, it made them stop and consider because he was preaching with authority. Like he knew what he was talking about. Not like he was just suggesting it, Not like he was just giving some good practices for life, but like he knew everything. 
That's true with happiness, too. When he preaches about happiness, we better stop and listen. That's what he does at the beginning of his sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, I want you to turn there. We're going to look at this verse by verse this school year. This whole Sermon on the Mount, we started it last week, which now we're actually starting it today. We kind of just introduced it last week. But the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus is going to tell people what it means to be happy. Now, there's a lot of wrong ways that we could approach what you're about to read. The first word that you see in verse number 3 is the word blessed or blessed, right? If you say it in the old English way, like blessed is the person who's this or that. I feel blessed today. You probably don't say that. Uh, Maybe your mom says, it's a blessed day, right? Okay, um, let's talk about this word blessed. The word technically means happy or joyful or sometimes fortunate, like good things have happened to you or you're in a good place. Now, that word blessed is used nine times here. If you just like look down in your Bible, verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six, all the way down until verse 11, this word blessed shows up over and over again. Okay, that should clue us in to what kind of genre of literature this is. There is a type of literature in the Old Testament that uses this word, blessed is the man, you might even be able to finish the sentence, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right? I'm just quoting from you uh, Psalm chapter 1. Right? So in the Old Testament, there was a kind of wisdom literature that said, if you want to be happy, If you want to be fulfilled, there's a type of way that you should live. There's a kind of life that you should aspire to. And what Jesus is doing is in that tradition, he's going along and saying, hey, this this is what true happiness looks like. The people who are truly blessed, and maybe a better translation is to say, it's so good to be these people. Like, it's so good to be them. Right? Like, they are in an enviable position from everybody else. That's what he's saying. The word blessed The the confusion is, there's two different Old Testament words for blessed, and this is the one that doesn't get used as much. Okay, two words, right? The first word is the word barak, which is used 327 times. Um, It's the word which means to bless or to praise, right? Um, Or worship. Sometimes it's used to say curse. So this word is used all the time, and there's a New Testament version of this word. It's the word which means to speak highly of, right? So when you hear the word blessed, you might think of Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in all these ways, right? We studied that last year, the book of Ephesians. That's a different concept. It's translated the same way, and that's confusing for us, but that word has a different concept with it. That word means if you're blessed, it's like people should praise you, right? Like in that context, in Ephesians 1, Paul is saying we should praise God because he's very good. This word blessed is used in a different way. The Old Testament has another word, ashray. It's the Hebrew word, which means blessed. But really, the, sometimes it's translated happy or blessed. It's a statement to say, how happy is that person? That person is so happy. That person is in such a good situation. It's even translated in the Old Testament narrative when people are talking about other groups of people, uh, in particular in 1 Kings, when that queen of Sheba comes down and talks to Solomon. He, she says, happy are your men. Happy are your servants because they get to hang out with you. The statement basically just means it's so good to be in your situation. So when Jesus says it is so good to be in these people's situation, what it's not saying is, hey, if you just try to add some of these attributes to your life, maybe you'll be happy in the end. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's describing a type of person that will in the end be happy. So there's a danger here that this is not a formula for happiness. That you say, okay, the way to be happy, okay, poor in spirit, that's step one. It's not exactly what he's saying. 
He's describing the person who in the end will experience true and lasting happiness. And for you, if you're a Christian or a disciple of Christ or a follower of Christ, he's describing the life of a Christian. So with that in mind, let's finally read this. That was a lot of introduction. Let's read it, okay? Verse three, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse five, verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay? That right there is why this is confusing. Happy are the people who are crying because they'll be comforted at one point. See, you immediately read that and think, okay, is Jesus just giving a general idea that maybe like it's good to get sad so that maybe one day someone will make you happy? Is, is Jesus promoting you to be like emo or something, right? It, no, he's not saying that. He's not saying, oh, you know what'd be really good? Like if you get down to rock bottom, the only way is up, right? That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that everyone who mourns will be comforted. That's not what he's saying. Think about it. There are people who mourn who will not be comforted. There's people who mourn over their own consequences of their own sin, and Jesus doesn't promise comfort to them. So this is very interesting. He's describing a type of person. That's how you got to think about this. You want to be this kind of person. If you'll experience true happiness in the future, you are going to be this kind of person. Those who mourn. It's good to be them. It's good to be the person who's mourning because in the end, they shall be comforted. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek, it's also translated in Matthew 11, gentle. So Jesus uses this word about himself and says, I am gentle or I'm meek. It means the kind of person who doesn't fight back. It means the kind of person who bears insult, who bears injury, who bears slander, and doesn't bite back and fight back. A meek kind of person. He's saying that's the kind of person who in the end will be happy. Let's just keep reading these Beatitudes. That's all we're going to cover today, but let's keep reading uh, just to get all this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a little section it's very famously called the Beatitudes. It comes from the word which means blessed. Right? What does that mean? Jesus is describing a kind of person who's happy. So that's what I want you to write down on the top of your worksheet. Um, you might see there's a line up there, how to. I'm not saying how to be happy. There's a difference in what we're saying. What I'm trying to say to us today, first thing is, I want you to be the kind of person that enjoys true happiness. So the first big header, which really will serve to be the introduction of everything we talk about, you can imagine today we have point one, two, and three. Next week, we're going to have point four, five, and six. The week after that, we're going to have point seven, eight, and nine, okay? Because it's all about this theme right here, how to be the kind of person who one day will enjoy true happiness and who can even have a taste of that happiness here and now. How do I be that kind of person? What does that kind of person look like? This is different than how to be happy. I keep saying that because I want you to, to notice the distinction. It's not saying that doing these things will in the moment make you happy because you already know right off the bat that doesn't make any sense because the word mourn 
means to cry. So he's not saying you'll be happy in your crying if you just start crying, right? That doesn't make any sense. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying the type of person who mourns and who has a deep sense of sorrow, in the end, that person's going to be happy. Or put it inversely, a person here and now who never mourns, a person here now who never is poor in spirit, a person here now who's never meek, they're, they're not going to be happy in the end. It might be easier to view it in the contrast. If you're never poor in spirit, if you're never mourning, if you're never meek, you will never experience true happiness. This is what Jesus calls to, or calls us to now. First step, understanding verse 3. Poor in spirit. Right? What does that mean? Poor means desperately poor. So there's, like, there's words to translate poor. You know, just like in our language, we have people um, who are kind of poor, right? We have people who are really poor and people who can't afford anything and are dependent on, like, you know, people for every last thing. The next meal, like, I don't know where it's coming from, right? Sometimes we use the word poor, like, oh, I'm poor, like, I have an iPhone, you know, 8, as opposed, you know, that's, a, that's an old iPhone now, if you don't know. Uh, it's like, I'm poor. It's like, well, no, that's not, you're not really poor if you have an iPhone 8. If you have a phone and a phone plan, you're, you're not poor. Uh, you, you might be less advantaged than other people, but you're not poor, poor. Not like this kind of poor. He's using the word which means like desperately poor. Like destitute is another word that we might use in English. Like completely, desperately dependent on everyone else for everything. That kind of poor. Is he saying the people who in the end will be happy are the people who have no money? No, it's not poor alone. It's the poor in spirit. So what does that mean? Poor in spirit, easiest way to put it, for point number one, is the word humble. Okay, point number one, let's write it down this way. How to be the kind of person that enjoys true happiness? Point number one is you got to humble yourself before God. And then, the correspondent to that is then you'll enjoy God's kingdom. That's what he's saying. The kind of people who are poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of God. They get this kingdom of heaven. Very interesting. Inversely, like, if you never humble yourself before God, if you're never poor in spirit, if you are confident, if you're rich in your heart, right? What is rich in your heart? You know, it's like, like happy. Like I'm full of life. You know, there's people that kind of just walk around and they're like, there's happy people. They're like full of life. They're rich in their heart. He's saying you'll never be happy in the end if you're not first poor in spirit. Now, I'm not knocking on people who are joyful because in fact, a lot of those people are poor in spirit. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But what I am saying is, you will never be truly happy until you realize you have nothing to offer God. That's the, that's the idea. Poor in spirit. What do you have to offer God? What can you give to God and say, God, be pleased with my life. Look at my life. Some people think that God accepts them because of the family they come from, or the upbringing they've had, or the things that they've done, or at least that they're better than the next person. What Jesus says is you're never going to be happy until you're poor in spirit. So you realize that you are completely and utterly empty before God. You have nothing to offer. You are not better than the next person. You have nothing good that you can give to God that God can say, wow, look at you. I'm so impressed with you. I'm so proud of you. You're coming into my kingdom. He says it's the people who are poor and recognize their poverty in spirit. They have nothing to offer God. And all these things, really in verse 3, 4, and 5, 
Jesus is referring back to this Old Testament passage that brings up the same themes and we think was probably in his mind as he said it. And I want us to turn to it to check it out. It's in Isaiah chapter 61. So in your Bibles, turn left real quick. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 61. We'll see what Jesus is talking about here. You'll notice the words poor and mourning come up. And even the concept of inheriting the land comes up. So we think that Jesus is probably having this in mind as he says these things. Maybe the translation that we can say is, it is so good to be someone who was humble before God because that's the kind of person that's going to experience God's kingdom. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. As you turn there, I just want you to remember this, that as you read this passage, you'll probably be like, oh, that's familiar. And it might be familiar to you because maybe you've read the New Testament and you heard when Jesus rolled up the Isaiah scroll and read this in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown synagogue with all these Jewish people listening to him. He read this passage, closed it, sat down to teach, and said, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically to say, I am the person that Isaiah chapter 61 is talking about. So that's happening at the same time, chronologically, that he preaches this sermon. Okay, So listen to this. Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 1 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So who's talking here? Isaiah doesn't say who's talking here. Jesus read this in Luke chapter 4 and says, that's me. I'm the one that the Lord has anointed, has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. Right? So, to the poor. Who are the poor people? Well, not just the people who don't have a lot of money. Right? In the Old Testament, that word poor became a shorthand for people who needed God. Right? And just a verse to prove it, Psalm chapter 86, verse 1. Psalm 86, verse 1, David writes, he says, I am poor and needy. Right? You memorized it this year in Psalm 34 when David said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard me. Right? Um, is David poor? He's not poor. David has money. Uh, even at the times where he feels like he doesn't have much money, he has family. There are times where he feels poor, but he's not really poor. So what does poor mean? It's a, it's a word that gets brought into the New Testament to basically mean someone who realizes I have nothing before God. I need God. I'm dependent on God every day. Every meal, every sip of water, every breath, it's all dependent on God. He says, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Right? What are we talking about? We're talking about a person who's poor in spirit. We're talking about a person who mourns. Jesus says, my job, one of my roles is to come to earth and to preach good news to the people who are poor in spirit. The people who have nothing before God and recognize they're humble before God. I have good news for them. All throughout this context, in Isaiah 59, two chapters before, and Isaiah 60, and going on into Isaiah 66, there's all these themes about people humbling themselves before God. Just to give you a little flavor of that, in Isaiah 59, right before this, you've actually probably heard Isaiah 59 too. I'll read it for you. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. That's the verse you memorize in partners if you, you know, memorize the umbrella analogy. Talking about how our sin separates us from God. Okay? He says this to these Israelites and says, your sins are a big deal. They've separated you and your God. Later on in the chapter... Isaiah 59, it says, God looked on earth and he saw that there was nobody that could save these people from their sin. So he says, I bore up the armor of God. I put on the breastplate of righteousness and I accomplished salvation for them. Very odd. Who's the person talking? Right? 
Jesus jumps into Isaiah 61 and says, that's me. He's also the person in Isaiah 59 who looks at humanity and says, they couldn't save themselves, so I'm coming down to save them. Then they repent. All this language about repentance. That's the poor in spirit. He says he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is where the quotation ends in Luke chapter 4. And he rolls it up and he says, I fulfilled the scripture in your hearing. Okay? If you read, keep reading, what's the next line say? It says, and the day of vengeance of our God. I think the reason Jesus stopped there is because he's saying, I'm fulfilling this first part as I come to earth the first time, and he will fulfill the rest of it next time he comes to earth. So here's the good news for us. If you're poor in spirit, if you recognize you have nothing to offer before God, if you recognize that your good works will never amount to what God expects for you, there's good news for you. Jesus says that he has come to save you from your sin. He will save you. If you're in Isaiah 61, just turn back real quick. Isaiah 57, listen to what he says here. Isaiah 57, verse 15, another famous verse, all about repentance, all about what they need to do to be right with God, all about the humility they need. Isaiah 57, verse 15, he says, For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So we're talking about God here. This is what God has to say. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He says, I'm holy, I'm perfect, and guess what? The only other place I like to be is with people who are humble. The only people who know God in this room are the people who are lowly and contrite in their spirit. You cannot know God and at the same time be a person who says, I don't need God, I don't need his salvation that Jesus offers, I can do it on my own. Those two things do not go together. He says here, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever. I'm not going to fight forever. Nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me. And the breath of life that I'm in. God's saying, if I were to fight you over your sin, you wouldn't survive. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face. I was angry. When he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. He's describing these Israelites who just kept choosing to do wrong. It sounds a lot like some of us, where God presents salvation, and you know you need to be right with God, but you keep on saying no to God. You keep on saying, I don't want to be a Christian. You keep on saying, I don't want to follow God. Sounds a lot like these Israelites. God says, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I'll lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, right? Do you see the connection with what we just read? In the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you see what he just says here? I will restore comfort to him and his mourners. Jesus has this in mind when he's speaking, I'm sure. He says in creating the fruit of his lips, verse 19, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Just a description of how life has always been. And it's exactly the offer that stands before you right now here in the 21st century. If you've heard the good news of the gospel, you know that Jesus offers to save you from your sin. He offers to forgive you completely. 
He offers to make you his child. But if you're a person who rejects it and says, I will not, well then Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 is about you. There's no peace for the wicked. There is no freedom from anxiety when you're fighting against God. There's no satisfaction to your lusts when you're saying no to God. It just won't work. This is how it's always been. This is 2,700 years ago this was written, that God spoke this. It's true today. It was true then. Well, what should we do? Step one is to realize that uh, your righteousness before God is nothing. Right? Uh, I need to be humble before God. Later on, Isaiah 64, 6, he says, our righteousness, our righteous deeds, the good things we do, to God, it's like filthy rags. It's like filthy garments, toilet paper that's been used. Right? Whatever's at the bottom of the outhouse or whatever's at the bottom of the porta potty that's been sitting there in the sun for three weeks in the heat, whatever that stuff is, that's used rags. That's dirty rags. We don't think that way, right? But here's what God says. Our righteous deeds, the good things we do to God, he's not impressed. It's like you offering that to someone for their birthday, right? Not a prank, right? That's, that's, that's like not a good idea. You think someone's going to be happy with that? No. Same thing. That God says, if you think that I'm happy and content with the good things that you do and think that's the reason you'll be saved, you don't realize how bad your good deeds are. Even the best things you've done. Think about the best things that you've done. Is there any, like, bad motives that are perhaps tainting that? The best things you know, have you ever spoiled a good thing by going and telling everybody and bragging about it? Oh, now you got pride mixed in with that good thing. Oh, is that why you did it? Maybe perhaps even the good things you were motivated to do, perhaps were your motives mixed and maybe even your good things aren't that good. Oh, wow. Before the light of a holy God, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's step one, to realize we got nothing to offer God. Step two is to go to God. Step two is to go to God like that man in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed and said, I'm so much better than everybody else. The tax collector beat his breast, wouldn't even look up to heaven because he was ashamed of his sin. And all he asked was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man walked down the steps of the temple, went down to his house, justified. God said he was saved. He was righteous, not the, not the person who thought he was good. If you're a person who's grown up in church and you think that maybe you're just going to fake it till you make it with Christianity and you think that maybe, you know, at some point you'll just become a Christian just by, I don't know, osmosis or something, by hanging out with Christians, um, the reality is you cannot be saved without being poor in spirit, bowing the knee to God, saying, I get it. I've got nothing good to offer God. I want to be humble now. When that happens, there's some sadness that takes place. There should be some sadness. That's why if you've heard Christians talk about when they become Christians and when they got saved, it's often accompanied with a kind of mourning or tears, with a kind of uh, brokenness in their heart. That's exactly what Jesus says next. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, who are brokenhearted. Right? Even the word mourn, it's not the word that just means cry. It's the word that's only used in specific times, even in the Old Testament, to talk about people who are like, uh, like with a loved one who just died. Like that initial, painful, deep cry that happens when you feel like you've lost everything. That's what the word mourn means. It doesn't just mean people who are you know, sad sometimes or people who are kind of depressed on occasion. He says, happy in the end. It is so good to be the person who feels the emotional weight 
of sin, who's broken over it, who really feels it, who doesn't just say, oh, I know I'm a sinner, but feels the weight of their sin. He says, because in the end, they'll be comforted. That's point number two. I want you to grieve over your sin and enjoy God's comfort. That's the only way you'll be a person who enjoys true happiness in the end. If you're a person who now grieves over your sin, realizes it's wrong, not just that it's bad for you, but that it's sinful before God, that's the kind of person that's going to enjoy God's comfort. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. God offers that. Yeah, because here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, hey, true happiness means that you'll never be sad. Because built into this is, blessed are those who mourn. Even in Isaiah 61, it was like, bind up the brokenhearted. And the next verse, it says, to comfort the ones who mourn. Right? So that's why we think Jesus was probably thinking of Isaiah 61 as he was saying these, these verses. Even the beginning of the end of Isaiah. Just I know we've been quoting Isaiah a lot, but the start of the second half of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 1, the first words that God says of salvation is, comfort, comfort my people. And then the rest of the book is all about how God's going to save his people. Right? How we even can be included in him saving that nation of Israel. It's very cool, but it starts with comfort, comfort. These people had gone through so much. That's why they were poor in spirit. They had been oppressed for a long time. They had a lot of hardship. See, this is where it's hard for us, especially people who've not experienced that much hardship. That's not your fault, by the way. Some people make you feel guilty if you've never experienced bad hardship. It's not your fault, right? But that means it's going to be hard for you to enter the kingdom. Like, remember when Pastor Mike was talking about at revival, the people who are rich versus the people who are poor, when, when Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, he said, it's just like those of you who are cool. Just like those of you who at school, people like you and look up to you. Maybe it's because um, you're a popular person. Maybe it's because um, you're athletic. Maybe it's because you've done something that, you know, merits some kind of praise from people or you've got a lot of followers or whatever, right? He says, it's going to be harder for you to be saved. It's going to be easier for the people here who have not very many real friends, who don't get, you know, a lot of attention when they walk into any room. They're not, you know, mobbed when, it, when they walk into True North. Not everybody notices them. When they walk into school, they kind of keep to themselves. It's actually easier for that person to be saved if they recognize, I need to be humble before God. It's harder for those of you who are cool, popular, attractive, athletic, harder for you. You're less likely to be saved. Why? Because you've like, I don't need anything. Like, I don't need God. I don't need salvation. Why would I need that? It's harder for you. Easier for those of you who are not experiencing all those things. He says he brings comfort. The step for all this is grieving over our sin. Right? That's implied, I think, in what Jesus is talking about here. Grieving over your own sin. That's where it all starts. Do you grieve over your own sin? Have you grieved over your own sin? Have you been broken over your sin? Not just because you get caught and that you're going to have some consequences, but have you ever stopped, turned off all the music, turned off all the things that you put in front of your face to distract you, and thought about how bad your sin is in front of a holy God? Has that ever happened? Have you ever mourned over it? Because if you recognize what sin really is and what it really does, it leads to the natural overflow of emotions, which can be seen in crying or mourning or grieving, things like that. New Testament says in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote to a group of Christians, he says, I rejoice 
not because I grieved you, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul had just come in and basically laid down the law and said, you guys are doing wrong. In fact, we think that maybe this is referencing a guy in the church who was doing a lot of wrong things that they weren't confronting. And Paul said, you guys are immature. You guys don't have it together. Am I really having to confront this guy? You all should have taken care of this, right? He confronted all these things if you read the book of 1 Corinthians. And he says, I grieved you. I'm sorry I made you feel bad. I, I don't want you to feel bad, but I'm also not sorry that you felt bad because you feeling bad led to you suffering no loss. Verse 10 says, for godly grief produces a repentance, a turning that leads to life and salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So he is showing, hey, there's two kinds of grief. So I don't want you to say, hey, you're good, you're covered because you've cried about sin before. Some of you have cried about sin before, but the only thing you're really crying about is because you feel bad for yourself. And you feel bad that you got caught or that you don't get to do the thing that you were going to do before. Or you don't get to go to the party you're going to go before. Or you don't get to go on the trip that you're going to go before because your parents found out something and now you can't. You've cried over that? Well, that might be godly grief, but it might just be worldly grief. What we're talking about here is the recognition before God that I am unholy, I haven't lived up to a standard that leads to true humility. Because what it leads to in verse 11 is, for see what godly grief has produced in you. Look at your life now. You were really sad, but look what happened to you. It says, godly grief has produced eagerness to clear yourselves. Indignation, which means you were really upset. You weren't just like, kind of bothered, like, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. Like, you were really deeply upset by your own sin, saying, I never want to do that anymore. He says, what fear. Like, you were afraid to ever fall back into this. You set up things in your life so that you wouldn't go back into that sin. What longing, like your heart just wants to do right now. What zeal, same idea. What punishment. He says, at every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. He says, that's what that grief led to, okay? I'll tell you this. Every real follower of Christ in this room, everyone who's really following Christ has had some kind of brokenness over sin in the past, has had this kind of godly grief. Some of you can remember when this first took place in your life. It's not something that just happens once, right? Every time you repent of sin, you should have this godly grief that leads you to change. But blessed is the person who mourns because they'll be comforted. Inversely, it's not good to be someone who's never mourned over sin. It's not good to be somebody who's never contemplated their standing before God. It's never good to be somebody who doesn't take sin seriously. He says, because you'll be comforted. God brings this comfort to us. The forgiveness that we can have in Christ, like that you can know after you sin that I'm completely loved and forgiven by God because Jesus died for my sins. And I read what the Bible says about people who are in Christ. There's no condemnation. That they're loved by God. See what kind of love the Father has shown to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's 1 John 3. Like every page of scripture talks about how good it is to know God. How blessed it is to be that person who's been forgiven. It starts with grieving over your own sin. But what that leads to is another kind of grief. Not just over your own sin, but over the sin that you see in the world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, some of you maybe have grieved over your own sin, but you've never taken that emotion and thought, 
how should I feel about the sin that I see in the world? What should I feel about friends and loved ones and family members who are choosing actively to do what's wrong? What kind of grief should that produce in us? Well, I'll tell you, godly people grieve over the sin of other people. Jesus does that. In Matthew chapter 23, he cries. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house will be left desolate. And then he goes on. And he says next, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Here's the point. Um, your godly disposition, if you're a person that's going to be truly happy, you will not be truly happy all the time. You are going to have a hard time going to your school. You're going to have a hard time on your team when you're surrounded by sin. Like That might be hard for you. In fact, it should be hard for you. If it's not hard for you, we've got a problem. We've got a lack of sensitivity in our hearts towards sin if it's just easy to hear God blaspheme. If it's just easy for people to do what's wrong. And it's like, doesn't even, we don't think about it. It doesn't bother us, right? That's a bad sign. If you couldn't feel a certain part of your body, right? Maybe right now, if you've crossed your legs and your right leg is over your left leg and you can't feel your toes, that's not a good thing, right? Has that ever happened to you? Sometimes you cross your leg, right? And then the blood stops going to your leg and then it's like, whoa, like I got to got to move my leg. That happened to me the other day when Pastor Roy was preaching. It was like uh, my leg was over, and I'm like, man, my leg's been here for a long time. I'm like, it's it's all good. I'm typing. I'm typing. And then when I came to move it, it was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is bad. One time I woke up from a very bad dream, and I couldn't move my arms. This is very strange. But I had slept, like, on my arm. This was actually at junior retreat when I was in high school. Very odd. You know, different place. Woke up in this weird place, right? Could not move my arm. I was thinking, hospital, am I dead? Like, what's going to happen? This arm won't move. And so get this, very strange though. If you're sleeping on your arm and your arm can't move, like you can't, you can't even move it. Like you can't fix the problem. So I was like, I can't move it. I can't move it. I got like claustrophobic. You ever been claustrophobic in somewhere where you feel like you can't move? It was like very scary for me. And then I like moved it and I realized, oh, I just, it's just asleep, right? But right when you wake up, Early in the morning, you're not thinking straight. So I had a lot of, like, crazy, wild thoughts about amputation. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. It was strange. I remember all, I told people, like, oh, man, crazy thing happened. Anyway, what happened? Okay, lack of sensitivity. Is that good or bad, right? Bad, if there's a lack of sensitivity. Here's what I'm trying to say. If sin never brings grief in your heart when everybody else does it, when your family members do it, then we're not seeing the full picture of what sin is. Some of us to make life easier, want to shut off and think, okay, I just only want to think about people's sin, right? I know sometimes it feels like you have to do that. But Jesus says, blessed is the one who mourns. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9.1, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were fountains of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He says, I look out but all these people in Jerusalem, and they're choosing sin, and they're doing what's wrong, and then they're experiencing God's judgment. He says, if my eyes were fountains, if my eyes were a water fountain, that would be better, because then I would actually have the tears enough to cry what I actually feel. That's a really deep emotion that he says. Questions for you. Do you care that people in your life are suffering because of their sin? 
do you care? Do you care that people, maybe who are experiencing the consequences now of sin, are experiencing that? Does that move you to anything? Does it bother you? Do you have pity? Do you take any action? Maybe even when people in your life are wronged, when people sin against people in your life, does that bring about any emotion in you? Or is it like, well, you'll get it next time. Does it bother you? That there are tons of people that are headed for hell because they're deceived into thinking their sin will make them happy. Does that bring about any mourning in you? Jesus says, blessed is the one who mourns, for they'll be comforted. That's why a lot of the Beatitudes have this forward-lookingness to it. Like the first one, he says, yours is the kingdom. So you get to experience God's kingdom. You get to know what it means to follow God now, and you'll experience what it means to be in his new world later. That's basically what it means to have the kingdom. Okay? Being comforted, that's a strange one. Right? When is that going to happen? Well, here's a way to think about it, perhaps. Like when, whenever there's a professional sporting event, there's always the players who celebrate at the end, but there's also always the family members who are there. They celebrate too, right? It's like they'll talk about it. Maybe they'll interview the wife or they'll interview the mom and the mom's crying and the dad's giving hugs to the person who wins. And it's like they won, right? Their heart is all wrapped up in it when their family member won. They didn't play the game, but they are like a part of the winning team. Oh, and when they lose, they're also a part of the game too. It's like they didn't, you know, they didn't throw a single pass. They didn't hit a single golf shot. They didn't do a single thing that involve themselves in the sporting activity, but they, in the end, either rejoice or they're sad. Why? Because they are included with the person who wins or loses. When God wins, in the end, when he wins over sin and death, the people who are rightly aligned with him will rejoice with the same joy that God has. How is God going to feel? What will it be like when Jesus takes the throne and everyone follows him? What kind of victory, what kind of excitement will you have, right? Even that, if you test your heart on that right there, that will tell you how much your heart is in line with God. Because some of you think, oh, I don't want that to happen, right? That's a bad sign. That perhaps might mean you're not rightly aligned with him. Or at worst, or even at best, it's that um, maybe you're just not sensitive about sin. When God wins, you win. If you're a person who's poor in spirit, who mourns, and also who's meek, right? This last one, right? what does it mean to be meek? Jesus says, I'm meek, I'm gentle. It means to be gentle or to be a person who's uh, not defensive. That might be a better way of thinking about it, right? Point number three, if you want to be a happy person, uh, you want to be a meek person. So what does that mean? It means that you fight the urge to fight back, to not be defensive. Point number three, fight the urge to fight back and then enjoy God's reward. Because he says, you'll inherit the earth if you're a meek person, not defensive. Literally what it means, and other pastors have said this before, I didn't make this up, but the idea of meekness is like being one of those big, heavy punching bags, right? You've seen those, you know, boxers or MMA fighters, they hit these big punching bags, and they're heavy, and they're solid, but they just take the blow, and then they swing back. And they're, they're heavy, and they're solid, but they don't bounce back. They're not painful. Like, nobody would be kicking a, you know, a brick wall and saying, that's how I'm training for my punching, right? Um, you want to hit something that moves with that, okay? To be a meek person means that you embrace the suffering that other people put on you, and you don't punch back. That's strange, right? That's not how we naturally are. And that's why when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth, 
It's like, well, who inherits the earth now? Who are the people that have a lot of land and have a lot of property? Who are the people now that can rise to riches really fast? It's not the meek people. In fact, it's the opposite. It's people who fight for everything. The people who are grinders and just want to like win every single battle. Those seem to be the people that are on top. Just very interesting that Jesus says, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to following me, you are going to have to adopt a mindset of meekness and humility and lowliness even. Because that's the kind of person who in the end will be happy. How can you inherit the earth? Well, that happens when Jesus returns. That happens when he sets up this new world. Those are the people that are going to have more land. I know it's kind of an odd thought, but this might help you with all these beatitudes. In a thousand years, who's going to be happy? It's the people now who are poor in spirit. It's the people now who mourned over sin. It's the people now who were meek and gentle. In a thousand years, who's not going to be happy? Who are the people that we say, oh, they are not in a blessed situation? It's the people who were proud in their hearts, thinking, I don't need God. People who thought, oh, I don't need other people. I'm a proud person. People who perhaps never mourn. Who say, I don't want to feel bad about anything. So, like, let it go away. Let it go away. Right? The people who are always fighting back against others. The people who are always defending themselves, even. This, this idea comes from Psalm 37. We read it earlier. Uh, the scripture reading this morning was Psalm 37. And all that comes from uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 37, 11, where it says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. But that psalm also says that we should commit our way to the Lord and he will act. Trust God and he'll work it out. That's what it means to be meek, right? So if you are a person that people say bad things about, if you're a person that gets made fun of, if you're a person that for God's sake doesn't get to experience what other people experience and you feel bad about yourself, he says, look, trust God. Let him deal with it. You lose a scholarship, because you won't do the bad things that your teammates want to do anymore, right? And maybe you have to quit your sport, or you have to get out of a certain class because it's like, I just can't do this anymore. That seems like a crazy thing. Well, commit your way to the Lord, and he'll act. Trust God. Do what you think God wants you to do, right, with what the scriptures say, and uh, trust him. He'll act. He says later that uh, a person may fall, but a righteous person will not fall headlong. The Lord will lift him up. He says later in uh, Psalm 37, verse number 25, he says, I've been young and I've been old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and I've never seen his children begging for bread. He's ever lending generously, and his children have become a blessing. So then he turns to all of us and he says, well then, turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He'll not forsake his saints. They're preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Right? That's what Jesus is getting at. This promise about the end times, it's only going to be for the people now who are poor in spirit. It's only going to be for the people now who mourn over their sin. And it's only going to be the, for the people now who are meek enough to say, I'll follow Jesus' example in all that. If you look at the scoreboard, it might not look, at it, look like it right now. But in the end, Jesus will win. And that's what he's promising here. This is only point one, two, and three. Come back next week, point four, five, and six. We've got three more Beatitudes to cover. But let's pray right now. God, please help us with this. We know that every time you speak, you speak authoritatively. We know that your word is true. We know when Jesus preached this sermon 
about what it means to be blessed, that he knew exactly what he was talking about. Pray that we'd adopt the mentality of a humble person who's poor in spirit, who mourns over sin, and who's meek. Pray that we'd live that out in our daily lives and that you'd help us, even on Wednesday night as we talk about this, that we'd apply it to our lives very carefully as you'd want us to. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.